Welcome to episode 40 of Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This is going to be a special Christmas episode on the Christmas truce of 1914. I know I've spoken about this event before, but hey, it's Christmas. I've got the holiday spirit, and it really is a feel-good story from the Great War, if there ever could be one. And I'll probably talk about it again next Christmas. The story of the Christmas truce is fascinating because it tells a couple things. It tells us that humans don't always have to act like a-holes. And it tells us that with a mutual sort of happy place or middle ground, countries can come together and be happy. This event displayed the better side of human nature under the most extreme conditions a soldier can be in. Every time I hear or read another book about this event, it ignites a, a fire of hope. My faith in humanity gets restored knowing it's embedded in our DNA that we have the capability of showing compassion under dire stress. These boys and men came together for the love of one thing, and that thing was believed to have been Christmas. But I'll also say this, which may or may not contradict what I just said. Under these conditions, it didn't take much for any man to easily accept a couple of days of ceasefire. And as good as this story is, this really just gave the soldiers on both sides a time to breathe without any worries of getting killed and an opportunity to clear the battlefield of the dead, which, in my opinion, was pointless because the dead will quickly pile back up. It's almost as if they hit a pause button and transported themselves to another realm. Because a truce wasn't real in December of 1914. This wasn't reality, if that makes sense. You know, Just hours, or maybe days before Christmas Eve? No, heck, even hours before Christmas Eve in 1914. Soldiers were peering through the newly created trenches looking for an enemy to just show his face so they could blow his head off. And keep in mind, these were soldiers. For the British and Germans, well-trained soldiers. And they were hell-bent on killing. The Germans were sent in to invade France via Belgium. And anybody or anything that stood in their way, well, they were stood a chance of getting killed. The Tommies from the British Expeditionary Force, they were sent in for one purpose— and it wasn't to play patty cakes with Fritz. This was an extremely violent time for this part of Europe. You know, compare it to us today. The world seems to be falling apart 11 months out of the year. Whether you're talking politics, wars, diseases, pandemics, drugs. I, I mean, I can go on. But then for anybody who recognizes Christmas, for one month we put on a show and, and believe all is good in the world. We really do try and transport ourselves to this make-believe reality that all is good. But in truth, this one month is a farce. It's not the reality of what's really going on. I hope I'm making sense here. So all that really happened during the Christmas truce of 1914 on the Western Front was a timeout for a couple of days, in some places a little bit more. But commanders would see to it that this would never happen again. But I still like the story. I do think it was Christmas itself that sparked the men to call a timeout. I think the regular soldiers would have done it every year of the war, 
if the commanders didn't put a stop to it. I'm guilty of being, being one of those people who like to be transported from reality to recognize Christmas. I put up a front with my wife thinking I'm some Scrooge or something, but I really do enjoy the whole dog and pony show that goes with Christmas. Now, I really do enjoy this time of year because it's when my wife's family makes tamales. It's crazy. It's basically an assembly line of moms, aunts, and cousins putting these puppies together. Everybody says theirs are the best or their families are the best, but I promise you these definitely deserve a title shot at being the best pound-for-pound tamale. I mean, green chicken chili, jalapenos with Mexican cheese, pork and red sauce, not a lot of masa, just the perfect ratio, and of course, music and cold beers. Oh, my mouth is watering. All right. Now, before I get into the heart of this show, of course, you know what I got to do. I got to tell you what I'm drinking. I'm drinking the holiday drink of all holiday drinks. I'm drinking eggnog. And not just any store-bought nog. Nope. This stuff is homemade with bourbon. And I'm drinking it out of my Clark Griswold Christmas Vacation Marty Moose mug. Mm. I like eggnog. A lot of people don't like it, and I can understand that. Because most who don't like it have only tried the store-bought versions. And there's a huge difference in taste between homemade and the stuff you get off the shelf. You know, much like the Mai Tai, there's crappy versions with nothing but sugar, something that doesn't even represent what, what it should taste like. And then there's the original Trader Vic's version, which is not crappy and is quite tasty when you're not spilling it. Let me tell you, stuff is fantastic. It's the stuff. It's it's not thick like the carton. It's got the fresh nutmeg. The bourbon is really present, which is always good. A rum, if you want to put rum. It all just comes together for this nice, creamy, custard-like beverage. It's just nice around this time of year. All right. Let's get this Christmas special started. Let me bring us in with a little Yuletide spirit. Christmas is a time when family and friends come together and remember the good things they have in life, to give thanks, and to spread the joy. The first year Christmas was recorded being celebrated was back in 336 when Rome was ruled by Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, and its purpose is to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Why we celebrate it on the 25th of December, nobody really knows because Mary claimed she would have have a special baby on the 25th of March. But hey, December 25th seems to work for everybody, and that's what we're going with. Christmas is a special time in Europe, which meant it was a very special time for the Belgians, the English, French, and Germans who were on the lines in 1914. This is the time when they should have been back home spreading the joy of Christmas and celebrating with family. 
The only soldiers in the trench during this time who could have cared less about Christmas were the Indians, Gurkhas, and, and some of the other territorial soldiers because their religious, religious beliefs were outside of Christianity, of course. But Christmas was a really big deal to everyone who recognized it as a time of celebration or a religious festival. Even today, France, Belgium, England, and Germany, they really go all out. During December, and some even in November, towns and cities are filled with a whole shebang of decorations, lights, Christmas markets, and all the rest of the jazz that makes it festive. It's supposed to be a magical time of year. But the situation on the Western Front during December of 1914 was far from being magical. A newly formed no man's land separated the two opposing trench lines, which was littered with decomposing body parts and corpses, now becoming hard as ice as the temperatures were quickly dropping. The trenches had become muddied from the cold rain and even flooded in certain areas. In some cases, it flooded so bad that the dead began to float above, just bloated and bobbling in the water right there in the trenches. I've spoken about the latrine situation in past episodes. It was go where you can in a spot that wouldn't get you killed, and that in most cases was right in the trench. You know, there was dysentery, trench foot, lice, fleas, an army of rats, and other sorts of gross elements that the war dragged along with it. Aside from enemy fire and artillery that could kill them, Mother Nature could also take them down. They had to worry about pneumonia because many were getting sick, frostbite, and hypothermia. And all of these are bad, but hypothermia obviously being the most dangerous because it can kill quickly. By December, the winter rain made it almost impossible for the soldiers to maneuver in. The firing had slowed down in some areas, and although fraternization was not tolerated, there was an understanding that both sides were living in an equal balance of misery at this point. And because of this, they were starting to get a little friendlier with each other. Friendly in the sense they would shout remarks to each other, maybe test out their comedic debut with their enemies by hurling insults or, or such. The lines were not that far apart. I mean, we're talking 50 yards or so, give or take some. In some areas, they were within a stone's throw away. The soldiers were getting a little bold. On December 19th, one wrote to his mother saying, A most extraordinary thing happened. Some German soldiers came out of the trench holding up their hands and began to take in some of their badly wounded that remained in the open. And so, we also climbed over to bring in ours. The Germans then beckoned to us, and a lot of us went over and talked to them. They then helped us bury our dead. This lasted the whole morning. I spoke with several of them, and I must say, they seemed extraordinary fine men. The situation seemed ironic for words. Just the night before, we had a terrific battle, and the morning after, we were there smoking their cigarettes, and they were smoking ours. Lieutenant Jeffrey Heineke, 2nd Queen's Westminster Rifles. Fraternization like this had been taking place most of December 
and was recognized by high command. General Forestier Walker, Chief of Staff to Smith Dorian, issued a direct order forbidding this behavior, saying it would destroy the offensive spirit in all ranks. And let's be honest, he's, he's not exactly wrong. It would be hard to kill a man if you actually liked him. Commanders wanted to instill the hatred, you know, put the propaganda in their heads that the man on the other side of you is bad. This is what would drive that fighting spirit. The last thing they wanted their men doing was hugging it out with the enemy. While some commanders looked the other way, others did not. By mid-December, British and French commanders launched a series of small attacks on German positions that were intended to provoke a hostile response. One particular attack was a complete failure. It was at Plogstiet Wood, or better known to the British soldiers as Plogstiet. During this attack on the 18th of December, they took heavy casualties, but sadly, most came from friendly artillery fire. Many of the dead from this battle laid in the open ground in no man's land. The artillery during this battle was so heavy that some of the bodies were flung in the air, then impaled on barbed wire poles. There's a British satire song titled, Hanging on the Old Barbed Wire, and part of it goes, If you want to find the old battalion, I know where they are, I know where they are, I know where they are. If you want to find the old battalion, I know where they are. They're hanging on the old barbed wire. One of the soldiers killed during this battle, who was impaled, was a 15-year-old boy named Robert Barnett from Stoke Newington. He lied about his age at the outbreak of the war to enlist. Like many others, he was chasing the illusion of an adventure of a lifetime. He's buried at the Rifle House Cemetery in Belgium. The cemetery is just south of the Christmas Truce Memorial, and to the left of both is the Plogstuart Memorial for the Missing. To the right of that is the Birdcage Unexploded Mine, and there's much more in that area to see. All are pretty close to each other. I, I would imagine that some in the summertime or any other months outside of winter, this would be a nice place to take a bike or, or a hike. There's a train station by the memorial if you don't have a car. But if you're planning a trip, I would check beforehand of any travel restrictions. Always wise things to do these days. So after the 19th of December is when Christmas started to come alive on the front. For the Germans, small bombs were brought in. This is a Christmas tree. In this case, they were small fir trees or tannin bombs put on some wood for, wood for a stand. Along with Vinox buckets being brought up, this is basically a Christmas package or a gift. For the British, anybody who wore the king's uniform, including nurses, received a Princess Mary's gift box. It contained cigarettes, pipe tobacco, and a greeting card in the king's script that read, May God protect you and bring you home safe. There was also a non-smoker's box option and special ones for Indian troops. Over 2 million boxes were packaged up and sent to the front. Military deliveries containing ammo or anything like that were suspended for 24 hours in order to bring these up. The German version of the Princess Mary box for the ranks was a large Meerschaum pipe with the profile of Crown Prince Frederick Wilhelm on the bowl, or a box of cigars inscribed 
Weihnacht im Feld, 1914. Weihnacht translates to Christmas in singular form, so Weihnacht im Feld translates to Christmas in the field, I believe. Non-commissioned officers received a wooden cigar case inscribed Flamenschwit, a flaming sword. I like the Mirschen pipe. I think it's pretty cool. Probably damn near impossible to get one. Actually, if, if there still is one to get, probably should go in a museum. I have a Missouri Mirsham corncob pipe. I love it. I would smoke it right now, but I don't smoke inside the house, only outside. Goes nice with a glass of bourbon, especially as the weather is getting colder and maybe a fire pit. As Christmas approached, the friendly gestures increased. It was reported by a correspondent who later wrote that near Armentieres, the Germans slipped a chocolate cake into the British lines with a note inviting them to a concert that evening. The invitation was accepted and they returned the gesture with a gift of tobacco. It was reported that at the proposed time, both sides lifted their heads above the trenches to hear the Germans sing, and they did, until insults were hurled, followed by a couple shots, and that ended the prelude to the Christmas truce. Now, there's no official evidence who started the truce talks, but most people believe it came from the following accounts from soldiers saying that after the night of the 23rd, Germans began placing their Weihnacht bombs along their trench lines along with candles. This act sort of became the impromptu for a truce on the 24th and 25th, and in some areas the 26th. The 26th used to be, I'm not sure if it still is, but it was a time for workers who worked on Christmas Day to receive gifts. I believe it was called Christmas Boxing Day, or, or still is. To be honest, in America, if you worked on Christmas, we had the sort of attitude, you're shit out of luck. So I've never heard of Boxing Day, but more power to you. And it was this exact sort of fraternization the higher-ups were concerned about. The British High Command in St. Omer sent a Christmas Eve warning saying, it is thought possible that the enemy may be contemplating an attack during Christmas or New Year. Special vigilance will be maintained during this period. So naturally going into this, both sides were on edge and weary of the other's intentions. But on the 24th, by the time the sky began to darken and the stars came out, something strange began to happen. Singing could be heard coming from both lines. Fritz broke out with Deutschland über alles, followed by more songs. The Tommies responded with Christmas Day in the Cookhouse. It was Christmas Day in the Cookhouse, the happiest day in the year. Men's hearts were full of gladness, their bellies full of beer. When up spoke Private Shorthouse, with a face as bold as brass, we don't want your Christmas pudding. You can stick it up your tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, oh tidings of comfort and joy. The Germans applauded, yelling, Bravo, Tommy. Then they announced that a gift was coming over. Suddenly, a boot dropped into the British trench and the men hit the ground, thinking it was a trap. But nothing exploded. Nothing bad happened. In fact, it was a boot filled with sausage and chocolates. 
The Brits frantically put a package together to return the favor. They filled a box with a card from one of Princess Mary's box and some Christmas pudding. For those that aren't familiar with the British term for Christmas pudding, it's basically like a pound cake in America, I believe. The Germans then offered schnapps if the Brits would meet them in the middle. The Tommies looked to their left and right, and after a slight hesitation, they moved out to meet them. News of this spread fast to the left and right down the lines, and this is really how the truth started, even with some hesitations at first. The troops, after receiving a warning that the Germans had something up their sleeve, kept them on their toes until they seen the Germans risking their own lives to meet them in the middle. I mean, both sides could have easily just mowed the other down once they showed themselves, but they didn't. But the French and Belgians, well, they weren't exactly as open to the truce as the British. After all, the Germans were the invaders of their country, and they were a little more bitter towards France. And yes, there naturally was anger, anger built up on every side since fighting began, because pals and sometimes siblings were, were being killed. Remember, remember the death toll up to this point, or I'll just say 1914, was in the hundreds of thousands. So naturally, there's going to be some ill feelings. But the Germans didn't have the same feelings towards the British as they did the French and the Belgians. In a way, they viewed them as an equal foe. They respected them a little more. And that may be upsetting for some people to hear, but this isn't my personal opinion on this matter. This is truly how the Germans viewed the British versus the others. In any sort of combat sports like MMA or boxing, a fighter coming up through the ranks knows his or hers worthy opponent and who they need to beat in order to become the champ. Really, this is the same method of thinking here. I think both the Germans and the British respected one another in this way. They seen each other as a worthy opponent, which, which brought on a little more respect. Now, the Germans should have respected the French a little more going into this because the French army delivered some major blows to the Germans throughout the war. In my opinion, they too were a worthy opponent. The Belgians were some tough fighters too. It was just a matter of size. They didn't have a built up army like the British and French. If they did, history might have taken another turn. You know, my point for bringing that up is because both sides cherished Christmas and they, they at least respected each other. And because there was a little respect going on, it made it a little easier for them to get a little more friendlier or I'll say chummier with each other during this time. One of my favorite Christmas cartoons as a child was the Peanuts Christmas special. <clears throat> In Stanley Weintraub's book, Silent Night, he talks about the 1960s Charlie Brown Christmas special called Snoopy's Christmas. In this, Snoopy dreams he's an ace pilot on top of his doghouse, which is supposed to be a sop with camel. He takes to the air on Christmas Eve, looking for his foe, the Red Baron. With ice on his wings to meet the Baron, he gets shot down. Snoopy thinks he's in for it, but then appears the Baron, not with a pistol, but with bubbly saying, Merry Christmas, mine friend. I'll, I'll play a little clip. And I have to keep it short because I probably could get in some copyright trouble if I play too long. So here, here's a short clip of it. The Baron made Snoopy 
blight of the Rhine and forced him to land behind the enemy lines. Snoopy was certain that this was the end when the Baron cried out, Merry Christmas, my friend! It's pretty cool. I It definitely brings back some memories. I used to watch the Peanuts every Christmas. Also, in Charlie Brown's Christmas, Charlie at some point carries a tree that very much resembles the trees the Germans line their trenches with. I think the creator, Charles M. Schultz, was a fan of the Great War. He was also a veteran of World War II, serving as an infantryman with the 20th Armored Division. Now, Snoopy's rendition of Christmas Truce in the Skies during 1914 wasn't exactly far off. On Christmas Eve, the Royal Flying Corps dropped a padded bag with brandy steeped plum pudding on the German airfield in Lille. The next day, the Germans responded with a drop of their own filled with rum. Call it what you may. Call it a timeout, a false narrative. But you can't deny that something special happened over Christmas Eve and Christmas on the Western Front. Up and down no man's land, soldiers came out of the trench, then walked in the middle to meet. One day they were killing each other, the next, this was happening. Traditional Yuletide Yuletide carols were sung, provisions were being exchanged, goods such as beer, bully beef, candy, chocolates, brandy, wine, tobacco, and much more were being exchanged. Even the most prized possessions were being exchanged. That was uniform insignia and buttons. Kind gestures were taking place everywhere. A German officer described that when his fellow field greys were assisting the British retrieve and bury their dead, he handed a British officer a Victoria Cross and letters that belonged to another British officer who was killed in their trench on the 18th of December. Clearly, this man was moved by the treatment of one of his comrades' belongings. He showed his appreciation by giving the German his silk scarf. Officers all the way up to Colonel were involved in this. But obviously, the higher you got in the rank, the more low profile you would have kept. Another officer from the 16th Bavarian spoke to his men about the significance of Christmas after seeing the trees lined up and the candles lit. He brought his men together and said a prayer for all the fallen. After, he and his men sang Stilnacht. The 133rd Saxon Infantry Regiment was ordered to the front line on the evening of Christmas Eve. On guard, after being warned that the British might launch an attack, they moved in cautiously. But after getting to the front, they noticed there was silence. No artillery, no gunshots. After darkness set, they fired a shot here and there to let the British know they were ready. But again, there was nothing. In fact, It seemed peaceful for the time. The moon was lit. Frost littered the ground. It was almost white everywhere that the moon could reflect from. They realized the fighting had stopped for Christmas. So the men lined their parapets with candles and a few trees and broke out with singing Silent Night. A British soldier that was present during this later recalled that the singing performance began just after dark And he said, I shall never forget it. It was one of the highlights of my life. After they got done singing Silent Night, 
The Brits shouted for more. And some Germans responded with, Oh Tannenbaum, oh Christmas tree. And to show their appreciation for this, the Brits responded by firing a barrage of flares into the night sky. Another unusual place where Christmas was being celebrated was in the mess room of the U-20 who was nesting in the North Sea. The crew of over 30 men, including its four officers, dined on rations and rum tea. U-20 is the U-boat that would later go on to sink the Lusitania. As I said earlier, the men were pretty exhausted by the time Christmas came. And they just had another good battle, although not the biggest in size, but it was a good fight that produced a a lot of casualties. It was the fighting that took place on the 18th. Well, by the next day when the sun rose and the soldiers were still going out in the middle to fraternize, it also exposed the dead laying everywhere. A good portion was from the 18th and some were from earlier fights. It was a sober reminder where they actually were. And both sides agreed to make burying the dead a priority. Imagine the situation. It must have been really sad. Soldiers were now seeing their dead comrades torn apart, blown to pieces. It really must have been horrible. This isn't the movies where a body is, you know, poetically laid out in some mild fashion. No. These men were torn to shreds. Bodies missing parts, some missing heads. There was holes in them. They were decomposing. There was rodents feasting off of them. Again, it just really must have been a horrible sight. And that's why both sides said, we have to bury these bodies. And I also said this before, that it was pointless because the bodies are quickly going to pile back up. Maybe pointless wasn't a good word to use because every single one of those soldiers from the start till the end of the war deserved a proper burial. But, I mean, I don't know. I guess burying the dead in no man's land just just doesn't make sense to me because this was the kill zone. The bodies probably ended up getting thrown back above the ground during bombardments anyways. You know, the earth was being lifted up during these bombings, just just churned right over. Maybe the more practical or, or better thing to do during this time, or for the sanitation-wise, maybe they should have just burned them in large. I don't know. I'm just saying. Either way, both sides really felt the need to make this a priority. You can use your imagination to how it must have looked to them. Now, there always has to be a Scroogey McScrooge in the bunch. (laughs) And and the official Christmas truce 1914 Scrooge was none other than Adolf Hitler himself. Hitler went to Munich in 1913 to escape Austrian conscription. He volunteered for duty after the outbreak of war, and eight weeks later, he was in Belgium near Ypres. He was assigned to the 16th Bavarian Reserve Regiment. He became a dispatch runner and was on the front lines, but during Christmas, he was actually pulled back to the reserve lines. Talks about the men going into Niemischland on Christmas was spreading, and it repulsed Hitler. Of course it would have. He later wrote about it in his book, Mein Kampf. He remembered arguing with other soldiers saying, such a thing should not happen in wartime. Have you no German sense of honor left at all? Clearly, 
everyone knows what a, a madman he became, but soldiers from his unit would later s- describe him saying he was distinctly odd. He didn't re- receive mail or parcels, never spoke of family or friends, didn't smoke or drink, and just often brooded alone in his dugout. All right. Now let me talk about something that's become quite famous when people talk about Christmas truce of 1914. That's football, or as we call it in America, soccer. This is going to get a little dicey for you fans of the game and believers of the Christmas truce football match. You can do the research. I did. And I can't find any official account of an actual game being played. Now, with that being said, there's many accounts of soldiers kicking the ball around, just just playing with the ball, playing around. In the UK, they call it a kickabout. But there's a big difference between playing a game and having a kickabout. Kicking the ball around is having fun, kicking it back and forth, you know, playing keep away, things like that. Here's my personal opinion on the matter. I believe some of the boys would have liked to play a friendly game, which it might not have really been that friendly. But again, go back to the condition of no man's land. This wasn't some place with smooth pastures of farmland that it was several months before the war. It's It's been ravaged by artillery. The ground could not have been in any condition to run back and forth, kicking a football up and down, playing a game on. I just don't see that happening. There was craters everywhere from the heavy artillery to the 75 cannons. Plus there was bodies and now some makeshift graves. Unless you show me actual evidence, which, hey, if there is, I'll say, wow, they actually did play a game and I'll become a believer. But until then, I can't recognize something that didn't happen. You know, there's no evidence outside of the men kicking the ball around or just just playing around with some football along the line. But to me, again, that, you know, there's a big difference between playing around and playing a game. History isn't something that could be just made up. You know, there has to be facts or evidence to tell the story. And I am a believer that history can be rewritten if necessary. So again, if anybody has the pudding, let's put the proof in it. I personally like stories about the soldiers trading provisions like the tobacco, food, or alcohol. I believe for that short period of time, this is what brought smiles to their faces. If you've ever been miserably cold, wet, dirty, and I'm talking monkey butt kind of dirty. You know, your muscles are shivering almost uncontrollably. You can feel the cold in your bones. You'll know what kind of joy a, a hot cup of coffee, soup, maybe a cigar, or a meal can really bring. If you were an infantryman, you understand the language I'm speaking. And I truly believe that that's what really brought them the joy. Sure, it wasn't burying the dead. And again, yeah, I do believe they were kicking the ball around, maybe having some fun. But I think it was just shaking hands, smiling, seeing the other person, trading provisions that really brought the Christmas true smiles. Now, 
Just as quickly as good things can come, they can quickly go away. The truce after Christmas ended in most areas. Others observed Boxing Day on the 26th, but for the most part, it came to an end after Christmas Day. And there was really no formal ending to it. Both sides knew it was going to end, and on the last evening, they shook hands in some cases, some saluted, others just said goodbye, and they went to their own trenches. A reminder that they were still enemies, and it was about to get real again. But how do you get two opponents who were just muckering about fraternizing with each other on the battlefield to fight again? Well, there's an easy solution to this. Can you guess what commanders did? Easy. They just pulled the front line to the rear and brought up the reserves who didn't fraternize with the enemy, who had no idea what really happened, and the fighting commenced with random acts of violence again. And all it really would have taken was one side. I mean, reserves come up, they start firing, artillery start shots start going off here and there. The other side, even if it's still the same frontline soldiers, you know, say it's on again, and the fighting starts. And the war continued on almost like nothing happened. Folks, I want to give a couple recommendations for this episode. First being the book Silent Night by Stanley Weintraub. Outstanding book solely on the Christmas truce of 1914, which there's not a lot of books about just on that alone. Next is the 2005 movie starring the great actor Daniel Bruhl called Joya Noel. I'm pretty sure I recommended this last year. If you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, it's an enjoyable, entertaining movie about the truce. Next recommendation, it's a little unusual for the show, but I found it kind of cool. For you music lovers, you might appreciate this one. It's the Christmas Truce official music video by Sabaton. You can see it on YouTube. I'm not a big music guy. I'm not sure what genre they would fall under. I'm assuming heavy metal. They have like nine albums dedicated to war history. The scenes in the video are really good. I mean, you know, there's some of the band members and these guys have rock star long hair. That part was kind of funny, but it was really, I was really entertained by it. I thought they did a really good job. Uh, you know who they remind me of? Ramstein. Yeah. And again, I'm not the savviest person when it comes to music. So I'm sure to most of you, this is nothing new. You might think I've been living under a rock, which I probably have. And, and I've got one more. Since it's Christmas break, for some, this is a good time to watch movies. The other day, I watched The Lost Battalion. It's a 2001 movie starring Ricky Schroeder, <laughs> the kid from Silver Spoons, right? Remember him? I know. Schroeder plays uh, Major Charles Whitlessey and does a fantastic job. I hadn't seen this movie in years. In fact, I forgot I seen it. So it was almost like seeing it for the first time, even though it wasn't the first time. It's a great movie. I feel like they 
if they had the budget of Saving Private Ryan, which came out before The Lost Battalion, this movie and the visual effects could have just been epic. You can see it wasn't a big budget movie. And even though still with that, it's a really good movie and a really good story. The story alone about Major Charles Whitlesey and how his life ended, it's extremely upsetting. And a lot of people, even Americans, don't know the story of the Lost Battalion, which is not only sad, but also it's why fans of the Great War like myself have podcasts to keep the Great War history alive. 1918 is going to be great, but that is way down the road for this podcast. All right, folks, I'm going to go refill my glass with some more nog. Maybe then I'll fill it with bourbon. I'm going to light up my Missouri Meerschaum pipe or a barrel-aged cigar. There's going to be some homemade straight from the pot tamales in my stomach soon. I want to wish to all my listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I hope you're spending this special time with your family. Thank you for listening to the special Christmas episode of Over the Top. Stay safe, keep healthy, and until the next episode, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas.